depending on the perspective, we're either one day closer to the end of the world or one day closer to me getting to do my job again. Good morning. Good Monday morning. I'm Dan Kovacevic of DK Pittsburgh Sports. You're listening to DK Sports Radio, our newly reborn podcast network that features this show coming at you every Monday through Friday very early in the morning. It's available on all, and I do mean all, of your favorite podcast platforms, notably Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast. We're on all of them. I can't wait to get back to work. I've got almost nothing else for you this morning other than that I can't wait to get back to work. I have stopped looking at this from the bigger picture. I have stopped looking at this from selfless standpoints. I've stopped looking at this from civic responsibility stances. I'm, I'm done with all of it. I just want to go back to work. I'm sorry if that comes across as a sports writer complaining, so be it. That's what I do for a living. It's what I've always done for a living. I want to get back to it. One of the things you're taught very early on in sports writing journalism is never, ever, ever, ever complain. The readers never want to hear you complain because they think, and I'm sure they're right, that you have the greatest job in the world. They don't want to hear you complain about the travel, about the food, about so-and-so mistreating you, about access issues, about anything, because you have an awesome job and you should never, ever say anything bad about it. And that's fine. For the most part, I abide by that. You will hear and read from me almost nothing negative as it relates to my job, and that's been true for years. You'll hear all the good stuff. Not now. I just want to go back to work because I can't do my job that's so awesome if I'm not there. Maybe, maybe I'll be back inside PNC Park as soon as tomorrow. At some point this week, we'll see how that plays out as far as the Pirates working with Allegheny County to reopen PNC Park uh, to media, to other outsiders, to loosen some restrictions that quite candidly really weren't intended for them. I hope so. I want to get back in there. And you know what else? When I do get back in there, and this won't be the case right away, and it won't be the case for quite a while, maybe not even in this calendar year, I want to get back into locker rooms. I'll hear a lot when I mention that, that why does a reporter have to be in there? What's the big deal about that? Why That's not really the reporter's place. Why are they in there anyway? What's the point of being in the rooms? Can't you just do interviews at a podium? Can't you just do... There aren't many topics that push the wrong button with me quite like that one does. The easy counter to that is reporters have always been in locker rooms before and after games. That's just how it is. Not all the time. We're not in there, uh, you know, with unfettered access. There's a certain time period in which you're in, certain time period in which you're out. We as writers have fought for that over the generations to make sure that we maintain 
that access. It's something that's been part of the game. It's the reason that you've been able to have great books about baseball when you're going way back, uh, great stories about football players. Uh, it, it goes across the span of sports. It's because we're in there. It's because we're getting to know people. Uh, they're getting to trust us, and mutually so. And we can tell their stories better to you, the readers. I have had 100% of all my best experiences in covering sports have been not in press boxes watching an event, but in locker rooms, something that I can relay to you directly that was either shared with me or that I witnessed or that I heard. And that's where I'm going to invest this episode of Daily Shot. And I'm going to give you one story from each of the three principal teams that we cover, Steelers, Penguins, and Pirates. And I have to start, I have to start with a football story from Charlotte, North Carolina, just a handful of years ago. You are probably going to remember this game. It was Steelers against Panthers, and the Steelers just mauled them. It was not. It was supposed to be a good game. There's supposed to be two good teams and everything else. The crowd was maybe... 70-30 in favor of the Steelers, even though the game was down there. And the Steelers just mopped the floor with these guys. Cam Newton, the whole deal. It was not even interesting. And after the game, in the locker room down in, I think it was called Bank of America Stadium at the time. For all I know, it still is. You never know with the way these places change names. I did the usual work around the room and everything else, and I, I spent a little bit of extra time with Brett Kiesel, who'd had a monster game. Uh, he just owned the Carolina front line and was in their backfield all night. Just just made Newton's life hell. And I waited out a, a group setting for Kiesel, and we talked for a little bit here. And by the time we got done talking, it was just me, Kiesel, and across the way, Troy Polamalu left in the room. And Troy had already done his talking and everything else, so it's not like I was going to take advantage of something and go over there. Hey, I didn't really need anything else. Kiesel was spectacular. I had all the quotes I wanted. The Steelers were awesome. They won. Big W. Here we go. All that other stuff, right? I had the column already. Kiesel and I get done. I thank him for his time, and I start heading toward the exit. I make eye contact with Troy, just as a polite thing. You know, you want to let him know you see him and say goodbye and whatever else here. Wish him a safe trip back home. And when we make eye contact, he motions with his hand to come his way. Oh, okay. What was I going to do? No. So I go over there. And he asks me in his I can't do a really good Troy imitation voice, but just picture it in his voice because I know you can you can do that. You can hear it. And he asked me, what do you think of that? And I said, wow, I mean, Troy, what do you mean what I think of it? I thought it was tremendous. I mean, you guys were all over them. I mean, that's the best we've seen your defense look uh, actually in a while, certainly this season. Hmm. He's not saying anything. He's just kind of slightly nodding. And he asks a couple more questions, and I give him more of the same. Hey, you know, you guys, this looks like it's all really coming together. 
Troy hears me out, lets me basically say all this stuff that I'm starting to get the sense that he's not agreeing with. And he waits. And he starts talking about the leadership of Alan Fanica and James Ferrier and other Steelers who were no longer there at the time, of course. Guys that he missed. Leadership in the locker room that he missed. He starts talking about how some of the younger players who are there don't have that same sense of responsibility to the team, to the team's goals. And he saw things on the field on this night that in spite of the performance, in spite of the final score, in spite of all that celebrating that was going on, including in the seats, he didn't like it. He sensed something really wrong. He saw things. As you would presume with everything with Troy, because of the way he played the game, he saw things that maybe the rest of us don't and can't. And he shared things without throwing anybody under the bus. He didn't name a single name. But he shared observations, at least not on the present team. He did make, as I said, multiple references to previous players. Aaron Smith's another one he threw in. He wanted me to understand, maybe because he was watching the conversation Kiesel and I were having, even if he couldn't hear us, probably a good 25, 30 feet away. I think he could tell that there was some level of enthusiasm being expressed by Kiesel, and maybe he saw certain expressions on my face as we were speaking that he thought, man, this is really not what happened. And he shared with me just some real dissatisfaction with the direction of the Steelers as a whole. I couldn't use this. I, I couldn't take what Troy said and slap big quotation marks on it. It was a conversation. It was one that I felt comfortable paraphrasing, but it wasn't one that it was going to be, and this is bad, and that's bad, which obviously would have made for gargantuan headlines. But that's not why we were having the talk. That's not why he wanted to have the talk. He wanted there to be an understanding. He wanted, for whatever percentage of fans were going to be reading about this game from me, he wanted them to have a better understanding of what had just happened and what it actually meant. I left that room. I, I don't even remember how long we talked. It was a while. I left that room having done a complete 180 on every other conversation I'd just had. And when you do columns the way I do, and you think about finding first and foremost as much information, as much input as you can before forming your own opinion, that's always been the way I've done this job. That doesn't mean that somebody else is going to be right and I'm going to be wrong every time I hear something else, but it means that you take in as much as you possibly can. You want an informed opinion. You don't want to just be... Um, this term exists in the journalism world, the ivory tower approach, where you're just sitting up there and uh, flicking pistachio shells down on the masses, letting them know what you think. 
there's a way to get in there and get your fingernails a little bit dirty and really find stuff out and then form an opinion off that. It still might not be the right opinion, but you'll still have had some substance to it. And I left that room and I walked the lower concourse of that stadium and made my way upstairs and everything I thought I was going to write, I didn't write. I took a completely different angle. My goodness, did the readers hate that column. I mean, I can't begin to tell you what a terrible reaction there was to that. Dude, did you watch the same game I did? They were awesome! They were awesome! How could you... What were you thinking writing that column? Were you just doing this to be different? Were you being a contrarian? Is that what this is all about? No, no. I talked to Troy bleeping Palomalu about it. He talked to me. I trust that man and his judgment way above my own. And I went in that direction. You know why that happened? All of that happened? Not just because I was in the locker room that night, but because I'm in the locker room all the time. And as such, have been able to establish the trust, not with everybody, but with a lot of very important people, the Pittsburgh Steelers. And the fact that Troy Polamalu trusted me that night in Charlotte to share that information with me. That's the reason that we fight for the access that we do. That can't be had at a podium. That can't be had in a press conference. It most certainly can't be had in a Zoom call. When we come back, I'm going to give you a couple more fun examples, one each from the Penguins and the Pirates. Stay with me. This is a fun episode. These ones where I get to look back at stuff that actually happened in actual locker rooms when I was actually doing my job, which I hope to be doing again very soon, in whatever form. No complaints. I'll take the Zoom calls. Get me in the stadium. Let me start watching sports again. Let me start writing about them, podcasting about them, being on TV about them. I I don't care. Just whatever it is, I just want to get back to doing my job with real sports. I shared in the opening segment a story about Troy Polamalu and one night in Charlotte. And for the sake of spreading this around to all the teams that we cover, I'm going to give you one more each on Penguins and Pirates. The Penguins one isn't going to come with the same level of drama, but it means almost as much to me. And I'm going to really drop here in the name branding from Troy Polamalu to Ben Lovejoy. For anybody who doesn't know, Ben was a reliable, dependable, Stanley Cup champion defenseman for the Penguins. Really a self-made player, not necessarily the greatest skill level, not the greatest skater, not the greatest shot, not any of that stuff. Just played with that much determination, that much heart, and also that much in the way of brains. Which leads me to one night at PPG Paints Arena in which Ben Lovejoy went behind the Penguins net, released a player, Marty St. Louis, 
never a good look. Marty St. Louis in the Hall of Fame on merit. Marty, give him an inch, he's going to take a mile, and then he's going to take the top shelf on you. And that's kind of what Marty did. He came out from behind the net, scored the easiest goal of his life. And Ben Lovejoy was standing in the back of that net, behind the goal line, against the boards, looking to all the world like the worst defenseman in hockey history in that particular moment. It was so glaring, so awful. And as is my way, I'm going to find whoever's most responsible in one direction or another for the game's pivotal play. I'm real big on that sort of thing. And the room opens up, and, you know, most of the reporters went somewhere else. I went went right to Ben because he's always been super, super accountable. He won't be happy. He won't be in a great mood, but he's super accountable. He's going to sit there and tell you. And... I made kind of a rookie mistake. I turn on the tape recorder right away and just ask him a formal question because you never know. He might not be in the mood for whatever chit-chat about it. So I just turn on the recorder and say, hey, Ben, what happened on that last play? And he gives this really generic something, something, I need to do better, we all need to do better, blah, blah, blah answer. And I sense that something's off. And I turn off the tape and I go, wait a second, what actually happened on this goal? And he goes... Honestly, DK, I'm not really sure, but I don't think I did anything wrong. And I'm like, what? (laughs) With all due respect, Ben, you were standing there. Marty St. Louis got wide open, went right away from you like it was nothing. And he goes, I know, it's just that there's a certain way we're supposed to do things back there. Now he has to be careful. Now Ben has to be careful because he's... He's treading into the, you don't want to throw somebody else under the bus. But he also doesn't want to be dishonest. So as we're speaking, as we're speaking, Jacques Martin pops into the room. And he makes eye contact with Ben. And I back off immediately. I always do that when a coach approaches a player while I'm doing an interview. I just back off. I don't want to hear anything they're saying. I don't want any any of that. It's just it's a respectful thing. So I back off. He and Jacques exchange a handful of words. And and that's the end of that. And you hear Ben saying, thank you, thank you to Jacques. And I go, okay, how about now? And he goes, all right, here's how this is supposed to work. And he explains again, without throwing the other guy under the bus, that this was an extremely unusual circumstance in which Ben actually was supposed to release that player. There's a certain thing, and don't ask me now, because I don't remember it. There was a certain thing, two other things actually, that were supposed to happen on that sequence. Ben Lovejoy, it turned out, was the only one who played the situation completely correctly. And if you're rolling your eyes at this right now, so be it. You'd have to know this individual to know that he's not the type. He's anything but the type to absolve himself. If anything, he would kick himself that much more for not having adjusted anyway, even though he had done everything right. But he actually had. And I went and I got descriptions of the play from a couple other guys who were on the ice 
and confirmed basically everything that Ben had found out and had confirmed himself with Jacques Martin. So I go upstairs, and before I start writing, I, I look at our comment section on the site, and I look at Twitter, and I see, Ben Lovejoy stinks. He's the worst. Get rid of him. Why is anybody like this guy, so-and-so's pet? And I actually knew what had happened. Why? Because I was in the room. Because I was able to ask questions, because I was able to see and hear and experience things. And so the piece that I wrote, a lot like the one that I got the information from Troy and Charlotte, was very poorly received, very unpopular. You don't know anything at all about hockey. You know nothing. Who taught you hockey? As if, like, as if Jacques Martin doesn't know hockey. Never mind Ben Lovejoy, right? And it was not a really good day for reading through the reaction to this particular column. And yet at the same time, I stood on it 100% because I knew it was completely true. And the reason that I knew it was completely true was that I was in there. I was getting the story, which I can't wait to get back to doing. I'm going to go way back for the Pirates one. This was when the Pirates played at Yankee Stadium, the old Yankee Stadium. Those of you who are longer-term baseball fans will actually remember this series because this was the one that Tony Rondazzo, the first base umpire, completely blew. Completely blew with a terrible call at first base that cost Jose Mesa, the closer, the final out of what would have been a really nice win for the Pirates. As it was, the, the inning extended, the Yankees ended up winning the game, and the Pirates were as sick in that locker room as I have ever seen a group of Pirates. I'm not kidding you. They were angry with each other, but especially with Rondazzo. It was a brutal room. Hard to even describe how angry everybody was in there. In the scope of all that... A certain beloved shortstop of the franchise had had a really, really, really rough game. And that, of course, would be Jack Wilson. He of the impeccable glove, one of the great gloves in the history of the Pittsburgh Baseball Club, had a terrible game, booting the ball all over the place, had three total miscues. Okay, I don't remember if they were actually scored errors, but three things that he tangibly, visibly did wrong in the field. And it had all the look of having New York freak you out or having the Yankees freak you out and being out there and hearing, oh, I don't remember the name of the, the PA guy, the famous PA guy who has since passed, who would introduce Derek Jeter, you know, number two, Derek Jeter, number two, and, and the whole aura of the original Yankee Stadium and the stuff. And if anybody was going to get weirded out by Yankee Stadium, it was going to be Jack. Uh, a beautifully immature individual. I say that in the most loving way. There's few athletes I've covered that I love more than Jack Wilson. Uh, but very much someone who's a kid at heart. And Jack being out on the field there and trading spots with Derek Jeter and the pinstripes and all that other stuff, I could see where that would get to him. That's very, very much a Jack thing. 
And I had no doubt that the New York writers were going to find him. We're going to, they were going to make a bigger story out of Jack messing up than they were about the umpire gifting their team the game, the team that they cover. That's just a New York thing. New York is really, really, really big on the whole New York aura. And when they see it happening, they, they seize on it every time. Jack, I think, was aware of this because as the pirates were being all angry and animated and everything else in that cramped little room, Jack walked out of the shower, looked at all of the cameras and microphones hanging around the pirates' number two stall and went right back where he was, just vanished. Where did Jack go? <laughs> oh, wow. I remember this like it was yesterday. So Jack's gone. Where did he go? Well, Jack peeks his head out. This is about another two, three minutes later. I'm waiting, too. I, I want to talk to him as well. I knew I wasn't going to get much more than what we already gotten out of Jose Mesa, who was breathing fumes. Uh, Lloyd McClendon already said what he was going to say. I'm waiting for Jack. Jack pokes his head back out of the shower room again, makes eye contact with me, and motions with his finger. Meet me outside. Outside? What? On the other side, just go outside the locker room. Okay. All right, sure. So I, I do. I leave the room. I don't tell anybody, you know, whatever. I just, you know, there's, there's no, you know, if I'm going to go ahead and get an exclusive out of this, so be it. I have no idea what he's going to do. I go out there. And Jack says to me, did you think I made those mistakes? Did you think that was on me? Did you think those were my mistakes? Well, the reporter's always put in a weird spot with this sort of thing because I'm not Perry Hill. I'm not some expert infield instructor. Uh, I also don't know what the grass was like, what the conditions were like or anything else. So I'm not going to pass a judgment. And I just say, well, Jack, I'm going to defer to you on that. What, what do you think? So he describes the plays, he describes something that went wrong individually with each one and how none of them were his fault, which all the way also was, by the way, so Jack, right? And he's going on and on and on about this. I said, Jack, you understand I'd really like to get something on the record if I could, anything at all. Wow. I mean, I don't really know what to say. Um, uh, okay, go ahead and turn it on. And he gives me something about how it's he just needs to be better. The plays were all his fault. <laughs> all this other stuff, right? <laughs> and I, I don't have anywhere to go with this, right? And I just kind of tilt my head looking at him as he's speaking into the recorder. What am I supposed to do with this? All three of these stories that I've shared with you, um, as you can tell, are very different. They're from very different people in very different settings, even very different times. But they all have the one thing in common. I was in there. I was in there working for you as the reader to get answers. It's in my blood. It's what I believe in. It's how I believe the job should be done. None of what I just described to you and none of what I would do on a normal boring night like the billions of others that I didn't describe in this could possibly happen if we were limited to podiums and press conferences, never mind Zoom calls. 
I understand why those won't be available for the foreseeable future. I get that. It's a strange time. It's a dangerous time. It's a risky time. But I also can't wait until we can, all of us in this business, get back to doing our jobs the way we serve the readers best. Coming up at 3 o'clock today, Jeff Hartman of our staff has another staff member on, as he always does, in a show called Back Through the Tunnel that I really hope you give a listen to. It's good stuff. It stays on one topic uh, every day, one sport, and it's been really well received by our, our listeners and readers. And again, I'll remind you that the best way to access our programming is to subscribe one of the podcasting platforms, Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, all of them. We're on all of them. Thank you so much for listening to this program. This was fun. Your front door, your car, your gym locker, your bike, your computer. Your window. Your gun. Safety is a habit. Every day you lock and secure your home, car, and everything you want to keep safe. Gun safety and responsible storage are no different and the best way to help prevent accidents, misuse, and theft. If you own a firearm, it's your responsibility to store it safely when it's not in use. Choose a system that works for you. Cable locks, lock boxes, and gun safes are some of the most effective ways to protect your family and keep firearms secured. Learn more about how to keep guns safe and secure and find out how to get a free firearm safety kit. Visit projectchildsafe.org. That's projectchildsafe.org. If you have a firearm, own it, respect it, and secure it. Brought to you by the National Shooting Sports Foundation and the Bureau of Justice Assistance.